0: Uh, if you are new this morning, my name is DJ, I'm the associate minister here at this summit. If you have your Bibles, we're going to dive right in. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be, so if you have your Bibles, grab that. You can also follow along with us the summitstl.info slash notes. But as Brian said, we're starting a new chapter and actually a really cool pinnacle section in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And it's one that over the next several weeks, even several months, you're gonna feel a little strange because we're gonna be taking parts of the Gospel and we're gonna be talking about them in times of our calendar year that we don't normally talk about. And so you didn't know, but you're coming in here on Palm Sunday. So happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Uh, But we are on this last leg of our journey um, through Mark. And I just want to take a moment this morning and remind us a little bit of what we are doing along the way. We've been focusing on two intentional words. We picked out two words, one for the first half of Mark, one for the second half of Mark. The first word that we talked about was the word disrupt. That what happens when Jesus comes on the scene, what happens when gospel reality confronts our distorted fantasies is we are disrupted. There is disruption that happens. And the message for us out of that is every day you and I should be experiencing some sort of this type of disruption. That every day we make a decision to choose faith in God over fear of the unknown. To choose the peace of God over anxiety and worry, to trust in God over our anger and our doubt. And we should be disrupted by the gospel daily. The second word that we've been wrestling with in the first or the second half of Mark is this word reset. And we talked about this actually a little bit in our James series this past summer, but it applies here as well, that messiness, suffering, challenges, and difficulty is part of the God-anticipated universal experience of every believer. That we have a God who understands our suffering, who has anticipated our suffering, who has equipped us and gifted us with the Spirit to go with us in our suffering. To say it another way, though, the disruption of God is never separated from the divine reset of God. The disruption of God is never separated from the divine reset of God. But yes, the message of the gospel should create within us disruptions as we navigate the messiness of life. As we make those decisions that are so hard at times To make We are disrupted with the truth of the gospel, but we must always remember that we are also given the reset in the gospel. That one of the beauties about how God leads us is that he doesn't lead us into a place of wandering and leave us alone there. That even when you go back and when you look at the Israelites, who were very much disrupted, find themselves wandering in the wilderness, that God is there resetting them in the message and truth of who he is. That the gospel disrupts our illusions in order to reset us towards the God of undeniable reality. And so that's kind of where we are continuing to navigate. And so I pray this morning that through the Holy Spirit that we would continue this process, that we would continue to allow ourselves to come in here and to allow ourselves to be disrupted by the truth of God's word so that we can experience the divine reset of God's beautiful and majestic reality. And so with that said, let's read our passage this morning. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1, says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives... Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And someone who was standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelfth. Let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, by your grace and your mercy, please make us. Amen. I want to a little bit set the stage for us as we navigate The next several passages in Mark by wrestling through this question What kind of Jesus do you long for? What kind of Jesus? Do you long for? This is a question that I hope we come back to over and over again, because I think in order to understand the coming events of what's about to unfold in the gospel, we have to be aware of this question. What kind of Jesus do you long for? We find ourselves here at Mark 11 at one of the most well-known, remarkable moments. Probably heard it called the triumphal entry of Jesus But this is the beginning of what we call Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life before his death, burial, and resurrection. And for us, Holy Week is about to last for six months. So get ready. But I do want to touch on that for just a second, because maybe some of you are like, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Well, let me explain. When you look at the gospel, okay, okay? When you look at all four accounts of the gospel, when you put all their chapters together, it's interesting, there are 89 total chapters of the accounts of the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 89 chapters. Four of those chapters, so roughly 4.5% of those chapters cover the one-year period leading up to the birth of Jesus. Right, that period around the birth of Jesus. Fifty-five chapters, 62%, cover his three years of ministry. And then 30 chapters, 34%, cover Holy Week alone. And so maybe you're thinking, hey, wait a second, 62% is greater than 34%, so what's your point? Let me tell you. When you break that down at to how much uh, content, how many chapters are given to each day of Jesus' ministry... The gospel writers give 80 times more focus in the final week of Jesus than in his three years of ministry, 80 times, which should make you ask, why? And I think there's a, a, lot, of, a lot of reasons that we could go here, but I think this is the one I want us to really grasp onto as we start this last leg of Mark, is that there is no gospel apart from the cross and the empty tomb. There is no gospel uh, uh, apart from the cross and the empty tomb. And the gospel writers, when they are writing the accounts of Jesus, when they are looking back and, and thinking back to what Jesus did and what he taught and everything they experienced, they see The importance of what is about to unfold in this final week. What Jesus does in this next week, leading up to the cross, at the cross, in his burial, and in his resurrection, will define everything that he did before that. So, are we going to spend a while here? Yes, because we should. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful, and here's why. I want us to be careful with this passage this morning and going forward, because while we are about to tackle some very familiar passages for a lot of people, it's very tempting to read into those moments then with what we know is happening now. Okay? Wrestle with that for a second. It's, it's very easy and it's very tempting, and at times we should read into then what is happening for us now. We have to look at what's unfolding as it's unfolding before we look at it backwards. So I think for us, while we wrestle with the question, what type of Jesus do we long for? We have to start with, well, what kind of Jesus were they longing for? What kind of Jesus were they longing for? And I would argue that when you look at all four accounts combined, that there are four main groups of people that are present around this time. And what I want to do is I want to look at what were each of those four groups longing for? And as we do that, what I want to challenge you with is how does that relate to you? How have you maybe experienced or come into contact with similar longings for these kinds of Jesuses? All right, so the first one that I want to look at is the crowd. The crowd. And I would say that the crowd was longing for a provisional Jesus. The crowd was longing for a provisional Jesus. As they've been journeying through with Jesus, as as Mark has sat down and he's, he's written down the events that have happened, there's something interesting that we've come to know about the crowd. Is that this is a group of people that gets really excited when Jesus does something awesome. When Jesus does a miracle when he feeds a ton of people. But this is also the group that tends to leave when Jesus starts to say the hard truths. This is is the group that they want to see Jesus meet what they think their needs are which is why we see them over and over again. The crowds brought all of their sick to Jesus. So that what? So that he could heal them. And here's what's awesome. Most of the time, Jesus does. In his grace, in his compassion, he would heal their sick. He would provide for their needy. However, when he would begin to teach the messages that were hard to hear, that were hard to understand, that were a little bit outside of the realm of their own comfort the crowd would begin to melt away. This is a group of people that they were longing for a provisional Jesus. Jesus, give us what we think we need. The second group of people are the Pharisees. And I would say it this way. The Pharisees were longing for a weak Jesus. For a weak Jesus. Jesus. This is the group of people that we've gotten to know very well, that they they want a Jesus who in no way would disrupt their legalistic external religion that they uh, have created to set them apart from everybody else. This is the group of people that wants to protect their power in the religious life of the communities that they're in. What's interesting about them is where do we usually see them? We usually see them hanging around the outside. And what are they doing? They're watching. But why are they watching? So that they can take him down. They're watching so that they can trap him, right? We see it over and over again that they ask questions to Jesus or they send people to ask questions to Jesus so that they can trap him. And what they're banking on, what they're longing for, is that Jesus wouldn't be wise to their trap. They're longing for a weak Jesus, one that they could contain, one that they could eliminate the threat to their own power. The third group of people, and we don't talk about this group or see them very much, but there's a group uh, called the Zealots. And this is a group that we're longing for the warrior Jesus, a group that, as I said, we probably, uh, we don't hear a lot about, but you can imagine they're always there keeping an eye on things. We've got a, a disciple who is a zealot, right? So he's there, but because this group, their longing, their mission is to overthrow the Roman occupation. to get rid of everything Roman, to get rid of Rome's hold on Jerusalem, on their holy land. And what they're longing for is for warrior Jesus to come in and to establish his earthly, physical kingdom right then, right there. Jesus, get rid of everything that we don't like and establish what we want. And then the last group of people, the one that we've gotten to know pretty well, the disciples. Disciples are tricky because, as we've talked about, they've had moments of, hey, yeah, I think you're getting it. And then they've had moments of, never mind. And I was wrestling a lot, actually, this week when I was trying to figure out, well, what is their real longing? Why do they keep kind of going back and forth? Why do they have these bright spots, but also these kind of weaker moments? What is really going on? And I think that one of the things at the heart of it is that they're longing for a positional Jesus. They're longing for a positional Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. That they are excited by the fact that they are connected and in close proximity to somebody of power and authority so that they can also experience and have some of that same power and authority. What they want in this type of positional Jesus is for Jesus to declare what is right, what is good, and what is fair, and what is just according to their point of view not according to God's point of view. What they want is, no, you say, this is right, this is wrong. Don't let the children come. That's not right. Tell these people to quiet down. That's not right. They want this positional Jesus that will put forth their agenda, that will uphold their position. And even though they walked with him, For the last three years, they still haven't grasped the true mission of what Jesus came to do. And this list could go on and on, but I want to give us a little bit of context on why we're talking about this. What type of Jesus, what kind of Jesus do you find yourself longing for? So let's spend the remaining part of our time talking about our longings for Jesus. Where do we find our longings for Jesus? Mark has been inching closer and closer to this moment. And there's been this question for me as I've been reading this and and preaching this and, and studying this that's kind of been lurking in the background That now what's happening and what's going to continue to happen as Holy Week unfolds is that this question starts to bring itself into front and center stage. And that question is, does our specific longing for Jesus measure up to the reality of King Jesus? Friends, we should long for Jesus. We should desire things that Jesus has embodied. We should desire the disruption and the reset that the life, ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus brings. But the question that we always have to ask ourselves is does our specific longing for Jesus, does it measure up to the reality of King Jesus. And so at this point in the narrative, it's good to wrestle with that. It's good to ask whether the intensity and the depth of our desire for Jesus is in align line with the truth and fullness of who Jesus really is. And a great way to do this is kind of like we were doing just a little bit ago. Look at the things that are going on in the world whether that's global, whether that's local, whether that's in your own household, your own family, just look at the things going on. The injustices that are happening. What do you long for Jesus to do? What are you longing for Jesus to do in those situations? And then does that match up with who King Jesus is? When I was a kid, I, I hated going to the doctor. For the record, I've never met a kid that loves going to the doctor. But I was a kid, I, I hated going to the doctor. But um, I latched on to something at the doctor's office. And I think most doctor's office uh, in the 90s had these. But you, do you guys remember Highlights Magazines? I don't know if there's still a thing or not anymore but one of the greatest what made highlights magazines great was the spot the difference anybody know what i'm talking about some of you some of you are there right so spot the difference right there are two pictures side by side they look almost identical but there's just some minor differences and so you had to decide all right let me circle the differences and that would keep my brain occupied long enough to be able to withstand going to the doctor But that randomly popped into my head this week because I would argue that most of us, when we wrestle with this question of our specific longings for Jesus and the reality of King Jesus, is that most of the time, the differences aren't extreme. They're not huge. Most of the time, they are small differences that, if left unchecked, can lead to gigantic, misaligned implications. Let me give you two common examples that maybe you've wrestled with like I have. What is the reality of Jesus? Well, the reality of Jesus is he is a comforter. That is biblical. We see that over and over. Okay, well, how does our longings for Jesus as a comforter look like? Well, sometimes what that could look like is that we believe that Jesus should just shelter us from all the hard realities of life. Jesus, if you're a comforter, that means that I should never have to experience anything bad. The reality is, we do. Well, Jesus, you're not a very good comforter. You see what's happened in that moment? What we've done is we've taken our specific longing for Jesus that doesn't necessarily match up to the reality of Jesus. Is Jesus a comforter? Yes. But what does he tell us? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, be comforted. Why? Because I have overcome the world. And when left unchecked, it's very easy for us to create this simple, therapeutic version of Jesus that we think is just supposed to keep our lives sweet and happy. Let's do another one the reality of jesus is he is a giver but sometimes in our longing for him as a giver may mean he's supposed to give us what we think we want and need we have determined what we need him to give us jesus you're a giver Here's my list of things that I need. Now, don't take this the wrong way. We are supposed to take our requests before God. But do we take them open-handed to him? Do we take them and at the end of it say, but God, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, Jesus is a giver, but if we're not careful... We can make Jesus out to be a terrible giver because he's not giving us what we think we need. But the reality is, what his word has told us is that what he gives us is according to his riches. Not so that we can have everything that we think we need, but so that we can have what we desperately need the most. And we could go on and on But the point for us this morning is this. Don't confuse our longings for a simple Jesus with the reality of the majestic King Jesus. Don't confuse our longing for a simple Jesus. We like to try to make Jesus simple. Right? We like to say, okay, if I can just narrow you down to, yep, you're a comforter, you're a giver, and here's exactly what that means. It's simple, I got it. But Jesus isn't simple. He's majestic. And it's really easy for us to miss the majesty because we're scared of the unknown. Perfect example is Toward the end of this passage in verse 9 and 10, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And what do the people say? Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Did these people understand what they were saying? I doubt it. I doubt it. I think for most of them, they thought, hey, this is, we're about to get exactly what we wanted. Whether that's the earthly kingdom that shows up right here and now, kicking out the Romans, finally to have a Jesus that puts forth our agenda. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what's awesome is God, in his sovereignty, put the right people in the right place and spoke through them the right words, that God's prophecy is still brought forth even when we don't understand it. And so you have to look at this passage at those two levels. What is God doing at the moment, and what do the people think God is doing at the moment? And this is important because I think we can easily miss this. God is fulfilling his work. God is demonstrating that he is the king of the ages, that he rules in such a way that he can control situations and circumstances and relationships and people so that exactly what will happen will happen because God is sovereign. And church, the truth that we need to hear in all of that, the truth that we need to hear when we're looking at passages like Jesus riding into Jerusalem and people are struggling to understand the significance, when we look at the passage of Jesus going to the cross and the disciples extremely confused into what's happening, When Jesus put into the tomb and people going about back to their old lives thinking, well, I guess that wasn't it. What we can't forget in any of those moments is that God's majestic reality will never surrender to what our expectations are. The majestic kingship of Jesus will never surrender to our simple longings for a simple Jesus. I think Mark's confronting us here. And I think what he's confronting us with is that identity the identity of King Jesus, the Savior. And you can try to boil him down to, well, he's just a prophet or he's just a miracle worker. We do this all the time. People have done this all the time. We create this Jesus in our own making, right? I mean, just just think about it for a second. If you were anything like me, I'm thinking, why are we preaching Palm Sunday in October? That is the direct conflict to the Jesus that I have made, to the gospel that I have tried to construct and put into a box. It's out of place. It's disruptive. But why? So that I can be reset. To the true message of the gospel, to the true identity of King Jesus, the one that must be honored as nothing less than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's a difference between two things that I've been wrestling with the last couple weeks. And I think it's this, I think we tend to look at Jesus at this point in the narrative, at his life, his death, his resurrection, we look at it as a turning point in the biblical story, a turning point in history. And that's good. But let's define our terms here for a second. What is a turning point? Well, a turning point is a moment or event that marks a significant shift or change in trajectory. We've all had turning points in our life, had turning points in history and society, right? The, the discovery of fire, thank you. The Industrial Revolution, the invention of the printing press. Robert Downey cast as Iron Man, right? These are all turning points in history. Would you have the MCU the same without Robert Downey Jr.? I think Not. yes, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was a major turning point in history. But if that's all we look at it as, I think what we've done is we've made a slight change that has gigantic implications. Because what I want to challenge us with is that we need to look at Jesus and his sacrifice, and his resurrection as a crowning moment, as well as a turning point. And you may be thinking, well, those sound the same. Well, they're not. They're close. But a crowning moment represents the culmination of a larger narrative that is more focused on the outcome. The culmination of a larger narrative that is more focused on the on the outcome friends maybe you're here this morning and you've thought jesus what are you doing this life isn't going any way how i thought it should be you're not giving me the things that i thought you would you're not protecting me from the things that i thought you would You're not making sense to me in the ways that I thought that you would. You're not dealing with these conflicts in the way that I think that you should. Well, friends, that's because all we're doing is looking at Jesus as a turning point alone. And we're not seeing him as a crowning moment, representing the culmination of something much bigger, much broader, much more divine than you and I could ever even imagine. A moment that's more focused on the outcome. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, what I want you to hear is there is a greater kingdom than your own. There is a greater kingdom than we could ever create. And there is a greater king than you. And that is good news. That is good news because Jesus marching into Jerusalem signifies a turning point in history, but a crowning moment in the cosmos where the culmination of God's sovereign plan of redemption will unfold and God's disruption is accompanied by this cosmic reset that God has been orchestrating from the beginning so church i ask you is this the jesus that you long for the one who comes in the name of the lord let's pray God, as we come to you, God, with our our hands open, God, with our ears that desire to hear, with our eyes that long to see, God, would you show us the reality of who you are? God, that so often we confess, we try to make you into things that you're just not to simplify you in ways that give us a distorted picture of you as king and of your kingdom. And so, God, would you, in your grace and your compassion and your mercy, through the power of your spirit, God, would you continually reveal yourself to us as the true majestic king that you are. one that has not called us to an easy life, but one who has promised us a victorious ending that has invited us in to be part of a kingdom that is so much greater than we could ever ask for or imagine. So, God, may we as your people, as your body, God, may we cry out every day, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The only name that saves. Amen.